Book of Acts, Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. Our scripture reading will come from the book of Acts chapter 27. In this particular narrative, we will be covering another uh, long section of text, but to give you a little context, I wasn't sure if this would be visible from where you are, but I thought I'd give you a context before we read the text itself, uh, in which Paul is going to be embarking on his journey to Rome. He has already stood and made a defense before three Roman governors, Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. And he originally began there in Jerusalem and was brought up to this area of Caesarea where he stood trial. He appealed to Caesar, and in this context, he will be traveling by means of ship from there to Sidon. And in Sidon is where, in the context of the scriptures we will see, he is given freedom by the centurion to visit and be ministered to friends. From Sidon, he will be transferring and traveling all the way to what is called uh, Myrta here in Lycia. And in Lycia, they will be transferred to an Alexandrian ship, uh, an Alexandrian grain ship most likely. And there they embark upon a journey to go to Rome over here by means of this route. They will land in an area called Fair Havens in Crete, but Fair Havens is not really a fair haven. In fact, it is not a good place to winter. So they desire actually to transfer to just another port just 40 miles away, but a northeasterly storm comes. They want to go here to this area called Phoenix, but the northeasterly storm will take him all the way for two weeks in a storm, and he will be shipwrecked in Malta. And then they will continue on after that shipwreck on up to Rome via this route. So we look out at Chapter 27, with that in mind, so you can see the context of what we're reading. Acts chapter 27, we will begin with verse 1. After the three defenses before the Romans, he, it says here in the text, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on an intermittent ship which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we were put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go with his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salmone, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed, 
and the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurokilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running along under the shelter of a small island called Claudia, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. They had hoisted it up. They used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet, now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and be Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, and we were being driven along in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the soldiers or the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somehow on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. 
Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, and for not a hair from your head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons, and when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail into the wind, or to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they, were, they all were brought safely to land. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, you are the one who controls all things. And in this text, O oh God, may we see your hand of protection and preservation, your spirit encouraging Paul and emboldening him. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word, illumine our minds, that we might see how we might conduct ourselves during times of disaster and distress in Jesus' Most precious name, amen. Everyone faces challenges in life. Everyone faces challenges sometime in their life. How we respond to these difficulties and challenges, how we respond to these disappointments in life is a true test of our character, isn't it? It is a true test of our character. It was true of Joseph in the book of Genesis, having been sold out by his ten jealous brothers to the Ishmaelites. His conduct, even in that circumstance, placed him second in Potiphar's house to all that he owned. Yet, even then, he was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. Having rebuffed her advances, he ended up in prison. But even in prison, Joseph's character was sterling and God gave him favor among the jailer that was there and he became the one in charge of all the prisoners in Genesis 39:22. He helped a baker, he helped a cupbearer in interpreting their dream and yet once again was forgotten. And yet he maintained his integrity, continuing to be a godly individual even in times of distress. And God used him 
and raised him up to be second in charge of all of Egypt aside from Pharaoh. God uses difficulties, and we are to respond because it is a true test of our character. He uses our lives in different ways that we might be a testimony to others of courage. Many of you remember the Oklahoma City bombing, the federal building a number of years ago. In the aftermath of that, many of you are familiar with a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata, who runs a ministry called Johnny and Friends for those who are disabled. She is a Christian, and she was invited to be a part of the counseling team that would help victims. She is a quadriplegic, and she writes this in her book, Receiving God's Grace. Quote, Upon arrival, I had to go to the American Red Cross Center to be cleared and credentialed. And I will never forget wheeling into that low, flat, red brick building. There were people setting up chairs and tables, stacking forms and putting out donuts and coffee. And across the large room was a tall, officious-looking woman in a white lab coat. When she saw me wheel through the door, she quickly turned around with her clipboard, put down her glasses and said, Oh my, are we glad to see you here. That sparked my curiosity, she writes. And I said, why? She responded, when people walk up to you in your wheelchair and see how you handle your personal crisis with that smile of yours, it speaks volumes to them. It assures them that they can handle their crisis too. We need people like you in here. Please help us go and find more individuals like you who can assist us. Immediately, I got this picture in my mind, she writes. Wouldn't it be great on any given Sunday morning to see people with white canes, wheelchairs, and walkers come through the doors of our sanctuary? And wouldn't it be something if we all turned around in our seats in the congregation and exclaimed, Oh my, are we glad to see you here. We need people like you here in our church. Wouldn't that be something? The woman in that American Red Cross white lab coat had caught the drift of 1 Corinthians 12, 22, and 23, which says, Those parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts of the body that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. Unquote. How we handle tragedy and how we handle suffering and how we handle disastrous circumstances will be either that which encourages or that which discourages those who see us because we will lead by example. They will be inspired to share the same attitudes as we do if we are with those who handle it well. Or we may discourage others by our example. And in this particular passage in chapter 27 of the book of Acts, Paul models for these sailors as they are about to run aground and they are engaged in a shipwreck, the disaster that they are in. He models for them godly conduct. And there are three particular things that he does which are found in the middle of the text that we will see him doing, that he models for us. He will proclaim hope from God, he will behave responsibly, and he will give encouragement to the entire ship. But first we see in the context of this, we see Paul 
Paul being a model prisoner in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 27. Paul, as I mentioned in the beginning, had appealed to Caesar. He had already stood trial before Felix, before Festus, before King Agrippa, three Roman officials, and stood court and be found innocent. And they asked him, Festus did, asked him if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem in order to stand trial there. The Jews had plotted already to kill him, and along the way they had no intention of trying him in a fair court, and Paul knew that he wouldn't probably receive a fair trial in Jerusalem. He stood there in Caesarea saying, this is where I ought to be tried as a Roman citizen before you, and he, because he was asked that, he appealed to Caesar. And so to Caesar he went. They departed from Caesarea. They departed from Caesarea, even though it may not say so in the text. It is implied, as Luke would have implied, that that's where they left. And they went to, they went up the coast, up the Phoenician coast. And he is joined, as it says there, when it's decided that we would all set sail, we would set sail for Italy. He is joined by Dr. Luke, the author of this book. Of all the prisoners, Paul would have been a standout prisoner. And he was favored for several reasons. Number one, he was a Roman citizen. Number two, he had appealed to Caesar. Number three, he would likely have been well-known having been kept there and having been found innocent of all charges. He would have attracted a lot of attention from the Jews and the Romans. And because he was well-known, when he traveled some 70 miles up to the coast to Sidon, They took on cargo in Sidon, up the coast there. In verse 3, it says, The next day we put out at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. This must have been an exceptional, this was an exceptional expression of trust in the Apostle Paul to be allowed to go with and to his friends and receive care. He must have been a model prisoner because if Paul had taken advantage of the situation to attempt to escape and escape, if he did, it would have meant death, a death sentence for those who were in charge of his custody. For a Roman soldier to lose a prisoner would have been a death sentence to them. You recall in Acts chapter 16 when the the situation in Philippi when Paul was there in prison with Silas and they were singing songs and the doors of the jail house opened up. The jailer, it says in 1627, awoke and saw the prisoner doors, prison doors open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. If the prisoners had escaped, it would have been a death sentence for that jailer. Likewise, in Acts chapter 12, Verse 19, when Peter was in prison and an angel appeared and led Peter out of the prison, having been under heavy guard, the Bible tells us in Acts 12, 19, when Herod had searched for him, Peter had already escaped, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, what did Herod do? He examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. If you lose a prisoner, it is your life for the life of the prisoner. That was the duty of a Roman who was in charge of guarding a prisoner. And so, 
Julius showed him great favor as Paul must have been a model citizen, a model prisoner, I should say, and afforded the freedom. So too, some of you recognize the name of Ignatius, a early church father, the Bishop of Antioch was afforded a similar freedom when he made his journey to Rome. And in Ignatius' cases as well, he was later martyred. I'm sure that Paul, by his kindness, by his conduct, by the words he said, by his own life, he was permitted, he was trusted, he was permitted to see his friends and receive care. His behavior engendered trust. His actions engendered trust. Even he was in chains for two years of his life under Roman custody. There is no sign that he was resentful. There was no sign that he tried to escape. There was no sign that he was angry. There was no sign that he had anything that was other than a gracious, good attitude, knowing that this was God's mean by which he would go to Rome. Secondly, he had friends. He had many friends. He wasn't someone who was aloof. He wasn't this distant apostle. He wasn't somebody who merely stayed in his prison cell. He had friends all over Asia Minor. He was a man of great learning, as Festus had recognized in the last chapter, but he wasn't a recluse. He had many friends. And when it comes to us, the same too. The question is, is our behavior that which engenders trust? Do people trust us when difficult times come? Our actions, our attitudes, how we respond under duress. How is it that we will act when we have difficulties that come into our own life? Paul was a model citizen. He was a model prisoner. Paul returned to a ship in Sidon. They set off. They landed in Myra. They transferred to an Alexandrian ship, as I mentioned before, likely an Alexandrian grain ship. And they set off. And they eventually landed in an area called Fair Haven. Fair Haven. And that is where the storms robbed their hope. That is where the storms began to rob their hope. Verse 9. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was over, Paul began to admonish them. And he tells them that there will be damage. He perceives there will be damage. There will be a loss of great loss of the cargo and the ship and potentially their lives. And Paul had already been, Paul had already been a seasoned traveler. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, he had already experienced three shipwrecks already. And having been in three shipwrecks, he could likely tell when the weather was going to be extremely poor and he knew the peril that they were going to be in. So he tells them, he warns them, But verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. And so they set out. They set out from Myra there on this Alexandrian ship to a, a place that was only about 40 miles away, I think, called Phoenix, hoping to harbor there for the winter. And then this violent wind, verse 14, called a Eurokilo, simply meaning a northeasterly wind, blows upon them. And the ship, it says, could not face the wind, and it gave way, and they had to let themselves be driven along far away, driven along. In order that the boat was not torn apart, the scriptures tell us they would throw cables underneath the ship and across the bow in order to cinch it together, to hold the ship together that it might not be broken apart. 
They began to throw cargo overboard. They began to throw the tackle overboard in order to lighten the ship that it might not sink. This ship was being thrashed about with the spray of salt water constantly coming over the deck. And many of the 276 crewmen and passengers were no doubt seasick as the ship, it says, was violently storm-tossed. Some of you probably don't sail because of the potential of seasickness. This wasn't just for hours. Some of you probably get sick within a short period of time when there's a storm-tossed boat. I've heard stories of some of you who by the mid-afternoon, a couple of hours, it is just unbearable for you. So you can imagine what it must have been like. This, this storm that had come upon the ship, when they had to bail water out of the lower decks, perhaps it would slosh on there, the rain, all of this must have been exhausting. And add to that, verse 20 says, neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days. What does that mean? That means that they had no, they had no idea what direction they were heading in. They had no ability to navigate. They had no directional orientation because that is how they would know where they were located and which direction they were going. And this was no small storm. Day after day after day, this happened in this violent storm. Verse 20, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. All hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. What an apt analogy when we face disastrous circumstances in life. Many of us probably can handle a day, a bad day, maybe a bad week. But a day after day after day, exhausted, they were not eating, the constant fear of being drowned, the constant fear of their life being in danger, and it lasted for two weeks at least. All hope was gradually abandoned. Many people can feel like this. Psalm 69, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69, this particular psalm expresses that kind of sentiment. Psalm 69, where depression sets in, the desire to simply give up when the future is bleak and a sense of hopelessness sets in and anything that we do may be futile, meaningless. Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, says the psalmist, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore." Psalmist cries out to God in despair. They go to sleep day after day, crying. They thirst. They wait for God, but he seems not to answer. The psalmist says, there are so many people who hate me. They're more than the hairs on my head. There are people who, in fact, want to destroy me. There are people, in fact, 
who I have to restore that which I did not steal. I'm drowning. And the psalmist cries out to God. The psalmist cries out to God. But the psalmist does not blame God, nor are they angry with God. No, in fact, in verse 5, the first thing that they see is their own faults. The first thing they see is their own sin. The first thing they see is their own foolishness. O God, it says, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Rather than having a self-righteous attitude, rather than seeing themselves as one who is undeserving of that which has come upon them, in which all of these enemies, in which all of these things have come and they do not blame God, they look upon their undeservedness of God's grace and realize their own wrongs which are set before God. And so too, as much as we would like to be innocent of all things when disaster comes into our own lives, as much as we would like to have our own self-defenses up or to blame others for things that come, the psalmist acknowledges that their part, their own foolishness, and they take responsibility for their own actions rather than blaming others. And it's not uncommon, you see, for people who face some type of loss, some face of a disaster, to lose hope, to be overwhelmed. But the psalmist looks to God and calls upon God, Save me, O God, because God is the one who can save. Many have felt, perhaps like these sailors, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And in these times of hopelessness, Paul, Paul does three specific things. Paul does three specific things as a model for us. The first, as he gives hope. He proclaims hope that comes from God. He proclaims hope that comes from God. Verse 22. Yet now he says to them, I urge you, keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and before, behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. He tells them, Angel of the Lord has come, and that he has granted him all who are sailing with him. He passed on the message of God's encouragement to them. He passed on the message of what the angel who came from God told him. The message of encouragement for Paul not to worry, not to be a person who would lose hope. Hope in the Bible is always that which is confident expectation. It is a confident expectation without doubt, but with certainty. The Bible speaks of the fact that we wait for the blessed hope referring to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They call him the blessed hope. And in that, there is no sense of uncertainty that he will return. It is not like how we might hope certain things here where it may not come to pass. Hope, biblically, is that hope which is without, without doubt. It is a confident expectation. Because life will always present us with opportunities to doubt, opportunities to be discouraged, opportunities to despair. We live in a sinful world and there will always be disastrous circumstances that will come into everyone's life. But we can choose to look to God and have hope and give praise 
in the middle of whatever it may be. In the book entitled Hope is Contagious, many of you are familiar with the late pastor Ken Hutcherson, who was the pastor of Antioch Bible Church up there in Kirkland for many years. He fought a terminal illness and cancer. He passed away, but in the process he wrote a book entitled Hope is Contagious, and he writes this, quote, A disturbing report hit the news about a little boy in Chicago who was shot and permanently disabled in a drive-by shooting. That fact alone is awful enough. But the reporter went on to say that everyone in the neighborhood knew who the shooter was, but no one came forward to identify him. The boy's mother even acknowledged that she drove by the shooter's house every day on the way to work. But what caught my attention were the words of an educator from Chicago who was interviewed by the reporter. The quote went something like this. That's what happens when people lose hope. You don't think things will get better, so you just give up. He continues on and says, I don't want to see anyone give up hope, especially when hope is so readily within our grasp. Whether you're walking the streets in the inner city of Chicago or sitting at your kitchen table, no tragedy can dim the hope that comes from knowing that God will walk with you through the valley that his presence will give you peace, unquote. Paul gave the hope to them, message from God. And us too, when there are those who are struggling or suffering or ourselves, we can hope in God and look to his word because his word gives us an assured hope without doubt that God will redeem the circumstance, and he will carry us through. Secondly, Paul models for us responsible behavior. Responsible behavior, verse 27. It tells them, tells us here in the text, that as the 14th night came, this is two weeks into the storm, they were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea. They thought, well, land was coming, and they thought they might run aground, And they thought they might escape, verse 30. But as the soldiers were trying to, as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, and they let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the sailors, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. See, not only did Paul instill hope, but he behaved responsibly. He behaved responsibly. Verse 24 stated that everyone already on the ship would be saved. He had received that revelation from God, from the angel who had declared that to him. He told the men, no one here is going to lose their life. And then in verse 30, it tells us that some of the sailors, they were going to escape from the boat. And what does Paul say? Unless these men remain on the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Now, what was that? Some might say, well, why, why are you doing that, Paul? You've already been told everyone is going to be saved. So why even do anything? Why even tell them unless these men are going to remain on the ship, you can't be saved? This is a prime illustration, a prime illustration of human responsibility in light of divine revelation. 
human responsibility in light of divine revelation. When Paul knows what God has said and yet he is responsible in his behavior. We know God has revealed his truth to us, yet we are to act responsibly and prudently in any given situation. We know that God will call all who are his own to salvation and that none of his will be lost, and yet we're to be faithful and do the work of an evangelist. We know that God is sovereign over all things, and yet we are called to pray always. We know that God saves people by his Holy Spirit, drawing them to himself, and yet Paul We are to be like him in 2 Corinthians 5.20, begging people to come and be reconciled to God. William Carey, who is the father of modern missions, when he was in a meeting as a young man, he shared his desire to go to share the gospel to the heathen. We are not to be like Dr. Ryland, who said to young William Carey at that time, young man, sit down. What God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or with mine. No, we are to be responsible to be people who share the good news. In light of God's sovereign will, which he has declared to us, we are to be responsible in our behavior. That is what we see here. None of you will die, he was told, but you better stay on the boat, otherwise you'll die, knowing that that is God's desire. We are to behave responsibly. Thirdly, what Paul does is he gives encouragement, 33 to 38. The day came, he was encouraging them to take food. It's been two weeks, they were bailing water, they had worked continuously, they had thrown a cable around the boat, or more than one to keep the boat together. He encouraged them, he ate himself, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from your head of any of you will perish. He led by example. Then they ate. Then they threw the wheat into the sea. He led a life of an example of encouragement, telling them to be of good courage and not to despair. And so are we. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 tells us, Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Or Hebrews 3.13, But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encouragement is so very important, especially in disaster. For some choose to focus on who's at fault, who to blame, who to fire, who failed, who did what, rather than to focus on what shall we do and to encourage people in the midst of a terrible situation. Which are you? Which are you? Are you an encourager of people who may be having a hard time in life? Or do you ignore people and just say, I had no idea that's what they were facing? The late Ed Salmon, who's a pastor from South Carolina, passed away just last year, wrote this. He said, just yesterday I went out to lunch When I got to Forest Park, there was a homeless man or two standing there. And there was this terribly disheveled man standing there with a sign said, I'm homeless. And of course, he was going by the cars and no one looked at him. He got to my car and I rolled down the window and I said, I don't have any money with me, but my wife is going to take me to the airport in about an hour and a half. 
And I'll have something for you then. And I'll have something for you then. And he writes, do you know what he said to me? He said, quote, thank you for looking at me. He didn't say a word about money. He simply said, thank you for looking at me. God has called us to look and see the needs of others. Thank you for looking at me because I can see. In every person, there is hurt that needs encouragement, discouragement, question for us is, do we pass by so many people and we are so self-absorbed into our own lives that we fail to see, fail to even notice, because we perhaps fail to even care? Are we an encourager? Well, in the end, God fulfills his promise. God fulfills his promise. They all make it to land because the ship runs aground. And the sailors were going to kill the prisoners because if any escaped, they would be killed themselves, as I mentioned before. The centurion wanted to bring Paul to safety, and so he forbid any of them to be killed, and God saved all of their lives. We are always to cling to hope in God. We're always to behave responsibly. We're always to be people who are encouragers. And the question is, how do we respond to difficulties and disappointments in life that will shine and show the true test of our character and our faith in God? Many of you recall a number of years ago when there was a devastating earthquake that struck in Haiti in January of 2010. Port Howe Prince, I can see perhaps the news reports that you may have seen on the news. There were countless buildings that were shattered. There were countless lives. In fact, compared to the disasters that we have been seeing recently, over 100,000 lives were lost in the earthquake in Haiti, that January of 2010. They lost all power because of their power grid and their infrastructure collapsed. Aftershocks were rolling throughout the ground and almost all of the residents in the surrounding countryside, they had suffered severe loss. They stayed outside, torn by their grief and their fear. Haiti is the poorest nation in all of the Western Hemisphere, and there was very little access. But NPR News summarized it this way. For the Western Hemisphere's poorest country, the earthquake that hit Haiti in January of 2010 was an especially cruel blow. Despite this, it's hard to find a Haitian. Despite this, it's hard to find a Haitian who doesn't profess a belief in a Loving God. Do you know what they did at night? Not only were they in grief, not only did they cry for their loved ones that were lost, but they sang. They sang. When you've lost everything, it says you still have a song. All over the hills of Haiti, those first terrible nights under the starlit sky, the voices of the people of Haiti rose in grief and lament, in prayer and hope. They had something we have almost lost. And they still have it. As anyone who has visited a Haitian church or family knows, they have a song of praise to God. 
We pray that we might be people who are encouragers, who see the needs of others, who give hope, who give encouragement, and who respond in a godly manner with songs of hope because we have a great God whom we can trust. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. All will see how great, how great is our God. And may we, O Father, sing your praises and have joy despite our circumstances, looking to you, being sensitive to those who have lost much, that we might be encouragers, we might model that which is a godly response in difficult times. In Jesus' name, amen.